0: Normally what I do, and I look at the year as going September to May. I look at the school year as our years. So when I say the year, I'm going through next into May, next May, 2020. I study a book of the Bible or several books of the Bible on Wednesday nights. That's what I do about once every decade. About once every 10 years, I do something a little different. This is it. This is a decade thing that I'm not doing again until I'm probably in my mid-50s. Uh, something like that. And uh, so, uh, But what we're going to do, and, and I wanted to do something a little different. We want to go through Scripture, the New Testament, and we want to look at the Jesus and his coming and in the, in the early church and the context of the world around them and what they were experiencing. So what we're doing is something that I've entitled The Beginning of a Movement. Really appreciate the graphic up there. And this is what we're seeing in this first century is the beginning of a movement. Christianity is a movement. It is not a religion. I know we're classified as a religion. Technically, you look at it that way. But in reality, we're not a religion. We are not a system of do's and don'ts and things you've got to do. We are about a relationship with the person. And the relationship with the person brings about all the other changes. And we've got to get that straight. In fact, in the month of September, I start Sunday, and I am back preaching after a four-week hiatus. It wasn't all fun and games for me in vacation. I, I had two church-related events that I was going to on Sunday. So I don't want you to think I just took off and didn't do anything. I took off. I didn't just take off. I didn't do anything, but I was doing some church stuff. And so, at some reason, I guess I have to come back at some point and preach. So I'm going to do that. Appreciate all the guys. They all did a great job. Uh, <laughs> Brian, can I share the story, Brian? Someone told Brian, I don't think it was any of y'all, it may, may have been interesting, I don't know, but they said that they really liked his preaching, but they don't care for his music. Something like that, right, Brian? So, is that you, John, you said that? <laughs> so it was right here, John, so I understand, I feel the same way, I don't care, care for a lot of it, but, uh, but it's good to know that guys are multi-talented, and uh, those guys did a great job. The ones I didn't see in person, I watched online, so I can critique them and judge them and be harsh. And all those things. But we're starting a series in September uh, on Mark chapter 1, the first 28 verses. Um, and it, it's entitled, what did I entitle that thing? I just skipped my mind. I just wrote the first sermon today. Oh, the life and times of Jesus. And so we're gonna, and so there's going to be a little overlap. Last week and this week of, of Wednesday night, a little bit of overlap. So the thing that I kind of set up with last week, and, and last week I talked about the coming of John. Today I'm going to talk about the beginning of the beginning. We're going to talk about the beginning of a movement. The beginning of that movement is Jesus. But one of the things I try to set up is the world they came into, especially the Judaism, the, the Jewish world. We oftentimes talk about the Roman world they came into, but sometimes we forget the Jewish world they came into, and we fail to, to grasp that when, when, in the New Testament, when they talk about the law and they talk about the prophets, they talk kind of about the Old Testament, Jesus and his followers looked at that differently than the Jewish leaders. In the Jewish world, in that gap between the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and that, that was about 400 or so B.C., and Malachi talks about someone who's coming, who's preparing the way for the Lord, likened to Elijah. That was Sean the Baptist. I talked about that last week. That in that 400-year gap, you see a radical, I mean, a radical difference in the way Judaism is presented. And so when you come to the New Testament times, You see these guys, the Pharisees, you see the Sadducees, you see these people, the scribes, known as rabbis. You see all these religious leaders that didn't exist in the Old Testament. And you see this this system that's in place. Judaism had, had moved from being about a covenant, See, the Old Testament really is the Old Covenant... The word testament is really covenant. It's an old covenant. The Jewish covenant, it's not our covenant, but it's an old covenant for the Jews that points to Jesus. I've always told you this. The Old Testament points to Jesus. It's a book of promise. The New Testament is a book of fulfillment about how Jesus fulfilled the promises God made to his covenant people to save the world. It's always about saving all of mankind. It went from a, a covenant to a religious system full of do's and don'ts. In the Old Testament, the covenant with Moses had ten commandments. The other things that you see in, in Numbers and in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they're, they're not the commandments per se. They're, they're ways of explaining what the commandments mean. So when God says you should not commit murder, he has a bunch of examples so they'll know in how to deal with it. But there's only ten commandments. And really, in the New Testament, Jesus says there's only two. Love God, love others, which sums that up. But the Jews had, from the end of the Old Testament era to the beginning of Christ, come up with 613 laws that they created that you had to follow. Now, the Ten Commandments wasn't that you had to follow these to be God's people. You were God's people, and that's why you followed them. You, and I did a whole series on this three summers ago, or two, yeah, two summers ago. Depends on whether you count this summer. If you count this summer, it was three summers if you don't count this summer, it was two summers ago. So you do the math. I, they told me there was no math when I came here, so I don't know. But I talked about the 10. Remember that series, the 10? Shake your head if you saw it like, yeah, that was great. I remember all 10 sermons. Here's the thing. What I said in those sermons is those 10 commandments aren't for us. They're not the, we're not to the follow them so that we can be close to God. But because we are God's people, because we are followers of Christ... We follow them because those are 10 things that God states that are reasonable ways for us to live, even the New Testament times. And so here's the thing. They're summed up in two. The Jews had come up with 613, and they came up with a system, and the system was about tradition and the oral law. And the traditions they came up with and the oral laws that they came up with took precedence in their world over the covenant. And Jesus came and broke that system apart. That's what we saw last week. So here we come. And, and during this study, I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm, everything's coming from the Word of God. But it's coming from all, you know, I'm going to go to different places. You know, this, uh, you know, through the end of the year, it's about Jesus. So I'll be in the gospel starting in January. I'll, I'll start going out into the book of Acts and other places like that. So here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to talk a little bit about chapter 13. Now, this Sunday, as I begin my series, out of Mark, John the Baptist comes, he baptizes, all that stuff. And I'm going to talk about the baptism of Jesus in two weeks. But here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 3, you have the baptism of Jesus. The baptism is important. And I'm not going to go into the depth on this and read it. But the baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of his ministry. Now, baptism was not something that was common to the Jews. They had ceremonial cleansings where they would wash from you know, their hands to their elbows. It was symbolic. But baptism, the plunging into water and the pulling back out of the water was what Gentiles had to do in order to convert to Judaism. They did that and they had to be circumcised and they had uh, to keep the law, the sacrifices, all that stuff, the ceremonial laws. And and the thing about it was Gentiles would kind of baptize themselves. What we see with John is he preached a baptism of repentance. I talked about that some last week, so I'm not going to go into that again. And he baptized, and the baptism was radically different because he called the Jews to come be baptized. I'm gonna talk about this in, in, in my sermon on Sunday. Jesus comes, and John has said, One is coming mightier than I. And Jesus comes to submit to the baptism of John. Now, Jesus did not need to be baptized like the Jewish people did, he did not need to repent of sin. So we need to understand something about the baptism of Jesus and its significance and why it was so important. For the first thing, Jesus did something that none of the other religious leaders would ever think of doing. You see, Jesus would be considered by many to be a rabbi, a teacher. He had had a knowledge of the scriptures that no one could match. He also understood all of the oral law. The reason he understood all of the oral law is because growing up Jewish, he was taught all that junk. So he knew it all, and he could get into debates with the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes all the time. But what they never thought of doing, they never thought of identifying with the people. Jesus was baptized, and it signified three really important things. One of them, it was an act of identifying with God's people. I am one of you, I am in the flesh, God in the flesh, but I am flesh. The second thing it did, it was authenticate The ministry of John the Baptist. Now, authenticating the ministry of John the Baptist was important because John the Baptist was pointing to the coming of Messiah. So by authenticating his ministry, he was giving credence and credibility to John proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, at his baptism, we know that the the, the dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of dove, sat upon him and God said, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, in in a quotation from the Psalms, marking his acceptance, marking his recognition that Jesus was his son in the flesh. So the third significant thing of the baptism of Jesus is that it was the beginning point of his public ministry. And that matters. Now, some people, there, there, there is a heresy that has existed from the very beginning of Christianity. And by the way, when you read the letters that especially Paul wrote, but also Peter and John, James. But but mostly, especially Paul, those letters are primarily written to deal with controversies, false teachings, and heresies that come up. That's why they deal with them. So when false teachings would come up, they would deal with those things. Now, one false teaching that you see in Corinthians he has to deal with is people denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We so had to deal with that. People talk quite often that he does, Paul doesn't write anything about the birth of Jesus. And that's because the birth of Jesus was never in question, the, the uniqueness of the birth. In time, though, there began to be some controversies. You don't see much in the New Testament, but later on, towards the end of the first century, going to the second, that, that Jesus was never really God in the flesh. The incarnation is denied becoming flesh. And what they say is that Jesus was a man who was born. A human, just like us, in all the capacities, but at some point was adopted by God. And at the point of his adoption by God, it's when he became the Messiah. And then at his crucifixion, God left him because Jesus said, Father, into my hands you commit your spirit. And then he died as a man. That way God never totally became flesh. They believe that at the baptism of Jesus, it's when God adopted him, when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now that's heresy through and through, but I'm just telling you that. That occurs. Now, here's the thing. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus starts, and both Matthew and Mark says immediately, the end of baptism story, immediately he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And so we're going to talk about that in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go through verses 1 through 11. Now, here's the thing that I want th- th- the question that I pose to start off with. When exactly was Jesus fully aware of all that he had to do as the Messiah. Did you ever think about that? Now, one of the things that I learned early on is we ought not to think that, you know, Jesus knew everything about what he was to do like the moment he was born. I mean, for Jesus to be fully human, Philippians tells us that he took upon himself certain limitations. Limitations. And one of the limitations he took upon himself was the fact that in becoming human, he had to become fully human. His power and his knowledge were never limited in the fact that he didn't have them. But he opted and he chose not to exercise them. Philippians says he took on the form, even being God, he took on the form of humanity, he emptied himself. That emptying shows that Jesus, what he did in essence, is by becoming human, he chose not to for all of his, for his entire human life, in all aspects, not to utilize all the rights and privileges being God, which includes perfect knowledge. So when he was born, he didn't know everything that was going to happen in his life. He had what we call a growing awareness over time of who he was. His mother undoubtedly told him what happened in his life, all those things. So at some point, though, Jesus, by the time he comes and he's being baptized, he knows, he knows somehow he's the Messiah. He gets that. He doesn't necessarily know all that's going to happen. When is he going to become aware of all that is set before him? Because immediately, once his ministry starts, he knows, he knows. Most likely in this wilderness experience, the 40 days he spent with God, God unveiled and unraveled and revealed to him what was to come before him. Now That that makes sense, and that kind of goes with the picture of Scripture. So here's the thing, as we see this. Then Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1, was led by the Spirit. This is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we'll stop right here. He was led into the wilderness with the result of that being, with the ultimate purpose being to be tempted by the devil. Now, there is, the devil's not going to tempt him if Jesus isn't aware of what's going on. So, we're going to see three temptations by the devil that deal directly with his role as Messiah. That can only occur because Jesus understands that. So, there's some debate over whether the entire 40 day period he was constantly being tempted by the devil, or as we see in the three temptations uh, that, were, that occur, it was at the end of it, or do they occur sporadically? I, I would tend to understand the way that it's written that he went into the wilderness for a period which resulted in, or the purpose of which ultimately was to experience the temptations. I don't necessarily think it means he spent whole 40 days being tempted. A large part of that time he spent with the Father, preparing for what was to come. Now notice, it uses the term the devil. Um, I think in the New Testament, I, I think there's 80-something times the word devil or, or Satan is or somehow used. And we need to understand that the devil, and I've said this many times to y'all, he is not to be thought of as equivalent to God. He is a created being. Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was an eternal God, second person of of, of the Trinity. So we're not to think of Jesus and Satan as equal. Satan has absolutely no power over Christ. None. But because Jesus is human, and as a human has to experience life the way you and I experience life, He has to not sin, but have the capacity to sin. And the capacity of sin includes the real opportunity to commit sin, and here it is through the temptations by Satan. Now, let me just say this. I hear messages quite often, or I have over this passage, and many times the preacher, and I get this, I get this, I understand it. And I've I've probably done this to some degree myself, but not recently. You know, they tend to want to say, they tend to want to kind of took at the three temptations Jesus experienced and find a way for us to relate to them and, and show how, these, how we're all tempted in one of these three ways and how the devil tempts all of us in that way. I want to share this with you. While there are things that I can learn to help me in dealing with temptation, primarily the reliance upon God's word, the temptations Jesus experienced and the temptations that I experienced are not the same. He experienced temptations as the Messiah, the incarnate son of God. I experienced temptations as a guy who's already failed many times. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're, we're sinners by our nature and choice. Jesus was not sinning, sinful by his nature. He can only be sinful by his choice. I'm born with a tendency to sin. It's in my DNA, and I do it. I know I do it. I've watched me do it. And, and I'm not to blame the devil for my temptations of sins, all right? Most of the things I'm tempted to sin by... You know, James just tells us you you sin, you're tempted because of the lust and the desires in your heart. So most of the, listen, most of the things that I am tempted to sin by, and, and it's because of my arrogance, my pride. You know, you 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 insult me, and I and I insult you back. That's not Satan. That's you insulted me, and my pride got the best of me. And and I, and Satan didn't have to do anything. He didn't need to do that. I'm primed and ready to go. Now listen. People tell me you're arrogant and prideful. I know that. And the thing about being arrogant and prideful is I don't care what you tell me. What's your opinion doesn't matter. You know, I know that already. You don't have to tell me. I've been married for 37 years. I, if I've got a sin or a flaw, I've been told that. I probably shouldn't have said that right then at that point. Sometimes I regret what I say. But you know, I have one of the most loving, kind wives, full of mercy and grace that you've ever met. Yeah. So, he was led, notice, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This was God's part of God's plan. So we have three temptations. And every one of these temptations is an assault upon the Messianic world, upon Jesus as being savior. So let's look at him. After he had fasted 40 days, after 40 days, fasted, Forty nights. He then became hungry. I can imagine. I go 40 minutes between meals. I'm ready for a snack. The tempter. Notice Satan at this point is called the tempter. The devil, by the word, comes from the word diablos, And it's the slanderer, the one who slanders. He's the tempter, the slanderer. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, what did he do? He tempted Adam and Eve. And he tempted Adam and Eve, how? By distorting the word of God. He said, "If you eat of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil." That was the life. He eat of of it. They ate of it. When they ate of it, they had a knowledge, but not like God. What was the temptation? And I told you this a thousand times already. The basic temptation of life goes back to the Garden of Eden: is to be the what of our own lives? God, we want to be in charge. Control. This. What this was. So he's doing the same thing to Jesus. He said this. He said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones will become bread. Now, if doesn't mean I'm doubting it. It's, it's a Greek word, it's a first class conditional sentence, and here's what it means. Not that you care about that part, but I want to share that with you so you'll know that I have a knowledge of Greek that's better than all yours. <laughs> since, he's acknowledging, the first class conditional sentence acknowledges the reality of the situation. So, since we know you are the Son of God, he's admitting you're the, he knows he's the Messiah. So, he's not trying to fool Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Take the stones. Command the stones to become bread. Now, the word command is an imperative in the Greek. Now, you know, Matthew wrote in the Greek. Mark wrote in the Greek. You know, most of this probably occurred. I don't know what language Jesus and Satan spoke. I mean, Jesus normally spoke Aramaic. And when he he conveyed the story to Matthew and Mark, Matthew, I should say, and the other apostles, and they wrote it, and Peter probably informed Mark, he would have spoken to them in Aramaic. That was their natural language. But the word command written is in itself a command. It's an imperative. So it's the idea that Satan is commanding Jesus to command the stones to become bread. Now, Jesus had the power to do that. It's not a question. But here, and he was hungry. So here's what Satan is doing. He's telling Jesus, why don't you do this? Why don't you use your power and to do something for yourself and to take these stones, make them bread, eat of it. And by implication, he's saying this, and then you can take your power and if you will meet the fundamental needs of people—to feed them, to clothe them, to take care of them—they will follow you wherever you go. All four of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus feeding the five thousand people. He also fed four thousand. The feeding of the four thousand doesn't get near as much exposure as the five thousand. I don't know because it it's fewer people or what the deal is. But, he, but there's two occasions. And when he fed the 5,000, the masses of people followed him. Now, why did he feed them? He didn't feed them because they were poor and broken. It's because he'd been teaching them, and there was a bunch of them. That 5,000 was just men. There's probably 15,000 total, counting women and children. And they were hungry. and had no place to get food, so he fed them as an act of kindness. And there were some other things involved. And they began to flock after him. In John chapter 6, When he fed the 5,000, they're flooding after him. By the end of John chapter 6, all of those thousands of people and all that had heard had abandoned Jesus. Why? Because he began to tell them the expectations of being a part of his kingdom, but being his followers, they didn't want to take it. They all left. He looked at his 12 apostles and said, you guys going to go also? And Peter said, whom are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. when, When Jesus laid out the expectations that he had as a Messiah... They abandoned Jesus. As long as he would have fed them, they would have followed. That is a true statement. In fact, Satan is not lying or deceiving him at that point, in essence. He's telling the truth for once. What he's doing, though, is tempting Jesus to shortcut what God had called him to do. Now, understand, if Jesus had, in these 40 days, been in the wilderness, had been learning exactly from the Father the exact nature of what was laid before him, that was an awesome task ahead of him. That was a monumental task. Probably, you know, the son of God, who had been, you know, God incarnate, who had spent eternity as God. All of that comes remembering, oh, yeah, now I remember what all has to happen. He, before he came to earth, he knew everything that had to happen. When he came to earth, he laid it aside. Now it's all coming back. And Satan said, why don't you just get them all to follow you? Just feed them. And he replies from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. So here's what he's saying Food is not what we need for eternity. We need food, I got it, but it's not that alone. But we need the revelation, the word of God, the revelation, the voice of God. Now, here's the thing. All of what we see in the Old and New Testament is God revealing himself to us. But the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. If you want to know something about God, know Jesus. That's the great place to start. I'll say this with you, the best place to start to know something about God is Jesus. He said I and the Father am one. So start there. Now, the word of God, the law of God, was God revealing himself to us. So Jesus is basically saying, here's the thing, What people need is not to be fed physically. They need to be fed spiritually with the revelation that only God provides. In essence, that's him. Jesus is that revelation. Now, we need to minister to people. I get that. And we do. But the most important thing we do is we share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of churches, and what I'm saying is a little bit tricky, so you've got to hear me on this. There are a lot of churches who have made their fundamental purpose to meet the physical needs, emotional and mental health needs of people. And they have put the gospel aside. Jesus says to us, the fundamental need of all people is Christ, is him. We should minister to people out of the compassion of our heart because we love them. We should feed people and help people. It's a responsibility we have. But the primary responsibility is to give them Jesus. Because there's going to come a time when all of us die and face Christ. And at that point, what do you think matters most? Whether someone was fed or clothed? No. What matters most is whether they came to know Jesus. Now, you know, I hear some preachers say this, and I don't know if it's true. But, but when people face Christ and realize they're lost, they're going to start going to all the Christians they know and say, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Because they're, they're going to say, that's what I needed. That's what Christ understood. It's, we need to minister, don't get me wrong. But never let ministry ever become the mission of the church. Ministry is never the mission of the church. And I have people come to me. I've had people over my 39 years next week of of this in in ministry leave the churches I I was at. Because I would not put ministry over the mission of the church, which is to share the gospel. And that's okay. Because I don't answer them, and you don't either. Let them go. Then the devil took him to a holy city, that is Jerusalem. This is probably not literally, probably vision. And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quoted Psalm 19. He will command his angels concerning you, and their hands will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against your stone." So Here's what he's saying. He Most likely, most things take. He can, took him to the highest point of the temple. On one of the walls of the temple, looked down at the Kidron Valley, about 600 feet, took him to the highest point of the pinnacle, and said, here's what you do. Psalm said that God's not going to let anything happen to his Messiah. And that's true. Why don't you just throw yourself off? And when you do that, everyone will see that. There'll be a crowd there. You know how people gather a crowd when someone's at a high place, about to jump. People come everywhere. Some are saying, jump, jump. Some are saying, don't jump, all that stuff. And you throw yourself off. And before you hit the ground, the angels will come to you. And you know at that moment, the people will go nuts. And they'll follow you. And he's probably correct. That would have been spectacular. Here's the thing. You realize how many spectacular miracles Jesus did, but people still really didn't follow him? I mean, come on. He raised Lazarus. Lazarus was dead four days. Four days. He raised him from the dead. When he raised him from the dead, did the masses come out to follow Jesus? No. Few did. Said a few people believed, and most of them went about their way. Here's the thing we have to be careful, and this is tempting in the church. Churches oftentimes are not careful, want to present the spectacular as the reason for following Jesus. So there's some churches, you know, know, some evangelists, you know, they'll theoretically heal people. They don't really do it, but they say they do. They'll do the spectacular. All these things will happen, and it's it's an incentive to follow Jesus. Baptists, here's what we do. Baptists, over the years, we have these things we call revivals. And we bring guys in and they preach these messages that get you all emotional and worked up. And get you all, you know, if you love your mother and your mother's crying out from her grave to come to follow Jesus. And people come and we do all that stuff and say, oh, look at the people that follow Christ. We present some kind of spectacular eye-catching, eye-popping thing. Sometimes we have to be careful because people think that some of the stuff we do, like have screens and lights and have haze. You know, we have haze occasionally coming out. By the way, I was at First Baptist Orlando Sunday. They have haze. That's a 5,000-seat auditorium has four services, and that's about as traditional as you get they have haze all over the place. Used to be we had haze because the deacons were out in the back smoking, but we stopped that. Now they have to get in their car and roll up the window. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6:16, 6, and by the way, Satan misquoted, psalm 92, by the way, but Jesus said, on the other hand, it is also, it's, on the other hand, it's also written, "Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test God." Oh, by the way, churches shouldn't test God. You know that, right? Sometimes churches, we're going to put out the fleece. We're not Gideon. We don't put out the fleece. We're, we're followers of Christ. We pray and let the Holy Spirit lead us. Can I tell you how many times I've heard people say, I'm just going to put out the fleece, Pastor. I've heard pastors say, we need to put out the fleece. Why are we going to the book of Judges to get our idea of how to follow God? Have you read the book of Judges? Don't do, the, only, the best part of the book of Judges is when Ahud, Ahud kills Eglon the fat guy by stabbing him in the gut, and the gut sucks the knife in all the way so you can't see it. That's the highlight of Judges. Just because it's unbelievably gross, and I wish they put that on TV. You ought to follow what the New Testament says. Here's what it says. Pray, maybe fast a little bit, and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't come to be the spectacular Messiah. Once again, it was a shortcut to get where we wanted to go. We should not present Jesus as the guy that will solve all your problems. We should not present Jesus as the one that will heal all your afflictions. And if he doesn't, it's because you lack faith. Oh, my goodness. You ever heard that? Well, I guess they lack faith. Really? Let me tell you something. This is just thought. The follower of Christ, who dies to go be with Jesus, wasn't because they lacked faith. In fact, what's so bad about going to be with Jesus? Isn't that the ultimate goal? Now, I'm in no hurry to do it. I got a few years left. I want to outlive all of you, especially the younger ones. Some of the older ones, I got a pretty good shot at. Some of y'all a little younger. I'm working on it. But here's the thing. We have this idea that we create that somehow people, if the spectacular doesn't happen in their life, there's something wrong with their life. There's nothing better than good old boring mundane followers of Christ who just live day by day trusting the Lord and being, bringing people to Jesus. Love those people. Especially if they give. Love me more. Here's the thing. That's not the Messiah that Jesus came to be. So there's one more temptation. But this is where it really gets at it. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, probably in a vision. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I mean, he showed him everything there was to see. He showed him kingdoms that they didn't even know existed back then. Jesus did. Showed him all the kingdoms in the Roman world. Showed him the kingdoms in the Persian world with the China. Went over to America, showed him all that. Showed him everything there was. All the kingdoms of the world. He said, all all these things I will give to you. See, Satan, you know, we need to understand, God is the ultimate ruler of everything he created. But for a while, he has allowed Satan to have some, some, some degree of dominion over humanity. That's why there's a spiritual conflict. That's why there's war. That's why there's sin and rebellion. So what Satan is basically saying is this, I'll give all that up if you'll do one thing. If you will bow down, fall down, and worship me. Now, the word worship, proskuneo, means to put your nose on the ground in front of someone and recognize them as their superior to you. To a king is to show honor. To a God is to show worship. Now, here's the thing. All Satan ever wanted from God was for God to recognize he was equal to God. That's all he wanted. He wasn't asking for much. He just wanted the creator of everything, including the creator of him, to recognize that him, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, was equal to God. Which is why in the Garden of Eden, he told Adam and Eve, you will be like God. Because here's the thing, that's all any of us ever want. God, we don't want much. Just let me be the God of my own life. Just let me be in control. And, and, and you know, give me good stuff. Don't let nothing bad happen to me while I make all these really dumb decisions but let me be in control. And he's saying, Jesus, all I really want. She used to give me all I ever wanted. Back, you know, Jesus, back before, before you became the son, you know, in the flesh. Back, Jesus, before, you know, the world was, Jesus, you remember back before Adam and Eve, back all of that, when I was, had this high place, and me and Michael, we were the two big angels, two big dogs, in the celestial beings, all I want Jesus now is what I wanted back then. Just one thing: I want you, your God in the flesh. I want you as God to recognize that I am God also. That's all I want. Now, at this point, and it was popular, and you know, and I used to do it. I don't do it anymore. To say, could you imagine what would happen in the creation as the sun bowed down before the Satan? Listen, forget all that. Here's the thing that's happening. He is saying to Jesus. I will relinquish control of all the people. And I know folks say, well, he's a liar. He wouldn't do that. That's not even the point whether he would have kept his word It doesn't matter. He's saying, I am offering you a way other than the cross. By now, Jesus knew the cross. By now, Jesus had to know the cross was before him. And he's like, oh yeah, now I remember that stuff in heaven before I came here that was going to happen. There's the cross. There's the cross. And he's saying, you don't have to go to the cross. He just got through spending 40 days in the wilderness. God saying, hey, Jesus, you're going to have to go to the cross to get this done. And now Satan is saying, you don't have to go to the cross. Yahweh says you have to go to the cross. Your father says you have to go to the cross, but I say you don't have to go to the cross if you'll just recognize that I am the same as you. I am God, and I will relinquish control. This goes back to the very first battle he ever had. It goes back to the beginning of before creation. This was the original conflict. Recognize I'm God, and all of this will go away. Period. Jesus said quoting Deuteronomy 6 Satan go away for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and you serve him only listen we worship and serve God and God alone nothing Gets in the way with it. Not the style of worship. Not the preacher who's preaching. Nothing gets in the way of worshiping and serving and giving our life to God. I say this all the time. We exist. Our church is here to glorify God. And the primary way we do that is to bring people to Jesus as fast as we can. But nothing interferes with that. And listen, I mess up all the time. I get that. I make dumb decisions. As your pastor, already, I've made dumb decisions. And and people are really nice to point those out. (laughs) This is one decision. I guarantee you. Nothing comes before worshiping and serving God. Not your opinion, not your desire, not a vote of our congregation, not what a group of people want to do. Nothing comes before worshiping and serving God. God, period. Because Jesus said that. That's enough. I don't feel that way because it says that in Deuteronomy. I feel that way because the Savior I follow said that. And then it says, The devil left him. Behold, angels came to minister to him. The purpose of that passage isn't to tell us when we resist the devil, the angels come. Don't read that. The purpose of that verse is to tell us that Jesus got it right. And the rest of his ministry will be a direct path to the cross with Satan every step of the way trying to stop him from going. And Jesus made it clear that his movement was not about religion. And it was not about system. And it's not about a list of do's and don'ts. And it's not a bunch of things we do or don't do. Because if we don't do them right, we're out of hell. It's not about any of that. What he is about is one thing. His movement is about worshiping and serving God, which we were created to do, period. Questions that you may have? Let me try to do my best to answer. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You mentioned right to start with that Jesus had a choice to sin. Yes. Do we, as the uh, created beings, have a choice not to sin? Yes, we do. Do we have a choice to walk as Jesus walked all the way up to this point of temptation? Do we have the choice not to sin? If we have the choice to sin, we have the choice not to sin. But we have to remember two things. We were born sinners. We we're born with the nature to sin. But every sin we commit, we make by choice. So we have in that you know, every sin I've ever made, I chose to do it. So that means I had the choice not to do it. So yes. But none of us ever choose in every instance not to. And if you think you do, you you, you just did. So <laughs> sorry, you gotta luck. Your streak ended at that moment. Anything else? Yes, sir. When he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Is to Jesus. Yeah, I would not know if I would say that. It, it, what it was, was it was the declaration of God to his son. You're my son who I am pleased. Others heard it. But, you know, there, there are times in scripture we get to be witnesses of events to which we're not a party. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get to witness something of which we're not a party. We get to witness the prayer of Jesus. We're on the outside looking at his baptism is the same thing. That baptism, while in some ways for us, the baptism was for Jesus. And all that was connected. We are having the privilege of looking in. So it ministers to us. Now, some might disagree with that, but I would simply suggest that he's saying that to Jesus. This is my beloved son, whom will please. But it's also a declaration for everybody. So it's it's twofold purpose, but it is for Christ. Anything else? Yes. You said the devil knew Jesus was going to the cross. Yes. You know, I heard a popular song, I'm sure we've all heard it, about how the devil was so happy when Jesus died. So that cannot be... Yeah, I, I, as a rule, no offense to you, I don't get much theology from psalms. No. Unless it's a psalm that's written. I understand that. And, and, and yes, we teach that when he went to the cross. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, sinful people put him there. Sinners put him there. We, we have to be careful that we don't give the devil credit for everything that ever happens. Fundamentally, Satan understood what the cross meant. And, and I know there's a song, you know, Carmen has a popular song, that We you know, what we grew up listening to, that we love it. You know, Friday's here, what is it, Friday's here, Sunday's coming, something like that. You know, it's a great song. But I understand, yes, you know, when, when the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, we would also say, you know, and I get that, that you know, Satan led, but fundamentally, the cross, and you know, Satan led Judas to, to betray and tempt Jesus, and I get all that stuff. But from the very beginning, you've got to understand that this was designed so that he would avert the cross. Now, when he went to the cross, the purpose of Satan after that was to keep people from believing what happened at the cross. So you got to understand that also. I don't know if I'd helped in answering that question. All right, we're through. Because Brian needs to get up here to practice, right? A lot, evidently.